Well, good morning. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, boy, uh, big weekend, right? So, how many have seen Caspian? I didn't see the show of hands. So, a lot. You're not that I'm a little disappointed. Let's get out there. Uh, I've heard great things about it. Uh, we got uh, Indiana Jones coming up next weekend, right? I mean, the Dodgers won last night, finally. It's like amazing. Uh, Lakers are doing strong. They're doing great. Yes. Yeah, so thanks. Hey, things are going, looking good. Things are looking good. So, uh, anyway, my name is Pastor Mike. Uh, welcome to Rocky Peak, especially if this is your very first time. I want to welcome you. And inside of your uh, weekend program is a white message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching. And so I encourage you to take that out as we uh, uh, dive in to our time. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for what you're doing here in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. And God, once again, we come today because we want to encounter you. We're not coming because it's just a habit. We're not coming because... It's the notch in our belt somehow spiritually. We're coming because we want to meet with you in worship. We want to meet with you in your word. And so, God, what we need is we, we would ask is that you would speak to us each by name, that by the time we're done today, we would have that sense of being spoken to as we go out. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today back in 1972. Now, I realize that some of you weren't alive then, but just play along with this. Uh, back in 72, it was, uh, it was the summertime, it was, uh, it was hot, it was Washington, D.C., and it was uh, a year of presidential elections, just like this year. And uh, there was some concern, you know, the president was running for, for re-election, some concern of his party, whether he's going to win or not. And so on that night, June 17th, 1972, uh, five men broke into the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. You remember that? Uh, it was called... Watergate, good. Some of you, over here you probably see on the History Channel or something like that. But uh, anyway, and so they, they broke in, and, and uh, the reason they were there was because there was reason to believe that there were uh, secret documents inside these headquarters that implicated the President of the United States uh, was having illegal dealings with Howard Hughes, the billionaire, and then if these came out, they would ruin the election. He wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, ruin uh, re-election. So that's why these burglars were there. And of course, they were indicted and they were uh, brought to trial. Not only the five of them, but two extra men as well who had kind of masterminded it. And so the seven of them were, were brought to trial. And uh, that fall, uh, the, the president was re-elected. And then in January, they came to trial and they were all convicted and, and sent to prison. And so, uh, but in the process of this investigation, um, it began to look uh, not so good. Because it turned out that all seven of these men were on the payroll for the committee to reelect the president. Uh, the president's committee to reelect the president. And so as the more the investigators dug, they began to find other illegal dealings at the the committee to reelect the president had these large illegal slush funds that were using to fund operations, kind of covert operations. They found out that they had, uh, there was uh, kind of political vendettas and political sabotage going on against their, their enemies. They had a list of enemies. They even had a, a plumbers, uh, they called them the plumbers, that would actually, uh, their job was to, to plug political leaks. And so there was just all this illegal stuff going on. And of course, the question was, uh, you know, since they were working for the president's committee, did the president know? And so they were convicted in, in uh, January of 73. And uh, as the year went on, all eyes were on the White House. All eyes were on what's going to happen. Uh, did the president know? And by the time um, the spring rolled around, he had to let go two of his top aides who had been now in, indicted and then convicted of, of crime. 
And about that time, he let go his, his White House counsel, a man by the name of John Dean. And in May of that year, May 73, the Senate got involved. And they opened uh, public hearings that would go on for almost three months and went from the middle of May to the first week of August. And man, all the, the eyes of the nation were on these proceedings. Never before did anything like this happen in the United States history. Every day, uh, all day, these proceedings would go on, and uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, they would alternate every third day, so it would be televised to the nation. Every night, uh, uh, people would come home, watch on the news what had happened. It was estimated that 85% of the TVs in the United States were turned on at some point in those proceedings to watch those proceedings. And, of course, the big question is, how much did the president know? When did he know? Was he part of the conspiracy? Was he part of the cover-up? And the more that these high-ranking administration officials went before the Senate and gave testimony, the more they did that, the more it looked like, uh-oh, you know, it's like it's looking more and more like, like this is heading towards the presidency. Well, along the way, part one of the things that happened in those hearings was that it turns out that the president had illegal, uh, he, he had tape recordings uh, in his, all his offices of taping all these conversations. And so the Senate demanded the tapes. He said, no, I can't give them over for reasons of uh, national security. And that went to court for about a year. And at the end of that court, it went to the, all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that he did have to turn over these tapes. And so it finally in the summer of, uh, of 74, in the July of 74, July 24th, those tapes were turned over. And, of course, once those tapes were turned over, it proved everything that all the witnesses had said, that this conspiracy went all the way to the President of the United States, the cover-up, plus a lot of other illegal uh, activity. And so 10 days after the tapes were made public, the President of the United States went on the air that evening on August 8th, 1974. And he went before the whole nation and he did what no other president had ever done. He resigned while in office. And the next day, effective next day at noon. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last couple of months. It's called The Way. And what I'd like to do every week is just to take a couple minutes and, and speak to those of you who are brand new here, you're new at Rocky Peak, and welcome you, and kind of bring you up to speed on what's happening in this series before we jump in. So here's a story. Um, this series is called The Way. It's a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest spiritual leaders, thinkers of all time, most importantly, an amazing Christ follower. And so what we're doing as a church is we're kind of coming around him and letting him mentor us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus started called The Way? In the early church, it was first called The Way. And so we're starting each week with the, the book, uh, his letter to the church at Rome, which is one of his longest, it's his most famous letter. We're using that as a jumping off place, an entry point to the rest of his teaching. And so today we come uh, to chapter 3 of Romans. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Chapter 3 of Romans. Now, the last time that we were together, if you were here a couple weeks ago in this series, you remember that Paul left us hanging. You remember that? That we, uh, that the first three chapters of Romans, he's bringing this indictment against the human race. He's showing why we fell away from God, how we fell away, what God's doing to bring us back. And so he's been bringing this courtroom scene, this indictment. And what he's basically shown is it doesn't matter our background or where we come from. It doesn't matter our spiritual upbringing. It doesn't matter whether we are what we call the wild child or a good kid 
or a special kid, one of the chosen race, that we are all equally fallen before God. We're not what we're supposed to be. And that therefore we're under God's judgment, what he calls the wrath of God. And so the last time we left him, he left us there standing before the judge of all the earth who's committed to do what's right and true and good. And he left us standing there and we're helpless and we're hopeless and we're speechless and we're doomed and we're damned. And it's just looking really bad. And if you were here last time, you remember that all of a sudden, then, as we're all standing there in this cosmic courtroom before the judge of all the earth, there's a rumor on the far side where someone enters the room. We can't even see him. We don't know who he is, but there's a rumor. There's a ripple in the crowd. Someone's coming. There's hope on the horizon. And so the Apostle Paul, last time, after delivering this closing argument and leaving us there before the judge, he sat down. Now he stands up again to tell us the good news of what has happened and what God has done in Christ. And so today what he's going to do is in two short paragraphs, he's going to give us three kind of very simple but profound um, paradigms or, or pictures or metaphors uh, to, to illustrate one big amazing truth of what God has done in Christ to rescue us from our situation. And so you've got those two chapters there in chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 21. And so uh, if you take your Bible, let's jump in. He says, um, but now, uh, but now at this, uh, this point in human history, but now at this point where we are standing before the judge of all the earth, right, helpless, hopeless, speechless, doomed, damned, we're, we're done. Now at this point in history, God acts to do something to rescue the race from our judgment. And here's what happens. He says, but now a righteousness from God. So God is going to present a new path to righteousness. It has nothing to do with us. It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness. So a righteousness from God apart from the law, or is apart from our performance, apart from the law, has been made known. God's revealed it to which the law and the prophets testify. So God has acted in Christ. He does something new to provide a new way to be righteous with God. It has nothing to do with our performance. And though it's new to us on the human scene, it's been long predicted in the past through the Old Testament prophets and, um, and the law. And he says, now this righteousness from God, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's for all who believe. Now, we read that often, like all who believe, that's just, you know, everyone's all who believe. But in context, in Romans, he's talking about a specific, he's saying it for a specific reason. Um, remember, the big question in Romans, it kind of runs through the background, it's on the back burner all the time, every week, is all the Jewish questions and concerns of, well, how does this new teaching about Jesus, how does it relate to the old teaching that we've been taught as Jewish people? And so as we've gone through Romans, you know, this question comes up time and time again. Well, are you saying, Paul, that uh, as Jewish people, we don't have any advantage? I mean, I thought we were the chosen race. Are you, are you saying that we're no different and we're no better or we have no advantage at the final judgment? And Paul keeps saying, yes, that's it. And so when he says here that it's for all who believe, what he's saying, it's all as in all Jews and Gentiles. There's not two different paths. And he'll, that'll become clear in a second. And so he says, it's for all who believe. Well, why? Because all have, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So as we've seen that, that this is a central crime of the human race, that you and I were created to be like God. 
We were created to be in his image. Remember, we studied that last time. And that when we uh, rebelled against God, we became unlike God. We are no longer reflecting his glory. We're no longer like him. That's the central crime. Now, it shows up in a million different ways, but that's really the core issue. We've fallen short of what we were created to be. And he said, therefore, we're, we are justified. We're all justified freely by his grace. So this justification that's being made right with God has nothing to do with us. It's a free gift. It's by his grace. It doesn't have to do with our performance. He'll say that in a variety of ways. Um, and, and he says it's through the redemption that came by Jesus, by Christ Jesus. Now, today we're going to be looking at three different metaphors, pictures of what God has done in Christ. The first one is redemption, okay? Now, we're not ready to go there yet. Don't turn your page or anything. But um, we're not ready to go there. I just want to point it out here. And, and we don't use the word redeem a lot today unless it's like in coupons or something like that. So we'll come back to that later and talk about what redemption meant then. But I just want to point it out. It's the first picture of what Christ has done. It's redemption. Okay, number t- uh, verse 25, he gives us the section, second picture of what Christ has done. And it's the picture of sacrifice. So God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And again, we'll come back and talk about what does that mean. Through faith in his blood. And it says he did this, in other words, he presented Christ as a sacrifice to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So, so since the beginning of the world, since the very beginning, we as a race have rebelled against God, but God has not dealt with us, right? He has not dealt that final judgment. Uh, he, he chose not to do it because of his patience. Why was he holding off? Because he, because he wanted to wait till Christ came to deal with the problem. He wanted to solve it another way. So in his patience, he's held off. But now through Christ, he's presented him as a sacrifice of atonement so that justice could be done. And so our second picture is sacrifice. Now the third picture comes in verse 26, and it's the word justice uh, or justification or pardon. And it says, he did this, he presented Christ to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So this is a, this is a core problem. This is a big problem we've got. We as a race are guilty, right? That's what we've seen for three chapters. We're guilty. We're fallen. We deserve to be uh, under God's wrath. We deserve to be punished. Okay, so the question is, now God, if God loves us and he wants to forgive us, how does he go about doing that? The first thing that you have to do if, 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 you, if you're going to be a good judge is you have to judge rightly, right? So like, for example, if you go to law court on any issue, you just pray, God, would you please give me a righteous judge? A judge who will hold the guilty accountable, who will set the innocent free. That's what we all want, right? And so now the problem is we come before the judge of all the earth, and for God to just forgive us and let us go for this rebellion, he would have to become something other than he is. He would have to become an unrighteous judge. Like how do you feel when you read in the paper, you look at this some guy that has done all these things, horrible things, and we know he's done it, and yet he gets off on some technicality. The judge lets him go. It's like, we all get angry. It's like, what kind of a judge are you? You know, what kind of, how do we feel when someone that is, is, uh, uh, gets, you know, does something terribly wrong and then they get off simply because they have a lot of money for high-powered lawyers? It's just it's like, what, you know, we want a judge that judges, does the right thing. 
So, so God is committed to doing the right thing, which is find us guilty, and yet he loves us and wants to find a way to set us free. You're stuck, you see. And what Paul is saying is through Jesus, God has solved that problem. Through Jesus, he's been able to, give, to render the appropriate sentence of, of, for the time, but it gets put out on Jesus, and we get set free, you see. And so he can be both just and justifier, okay? Now, Okay, so, so the, the third picture then is, is sort of the law court scene, pardon, justification. We'll come back to that. Now, now, of course, as I mentioned earlier, always in the background, as Paul's teaching in Romans, is his Jewish listener. I mean, he loves the Jews. He's a Jew. He's very tuned into their objections. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And so as he's given this thing now, of what God's done through Jesus, he knows what's going through their mind. And so he raises three objections, three issues that are Jewish issues. The first one comes in verse 27, where he says, well, where then is boasting? Um, now, if you're a Jew, remember back from chapter 2, you're very proud of your heritage. You're proud of your lineage. We're a Jew. I'm a Jew. I'm part of the chosen race. I've received the law. I've been circumcised. I'm special. That's the mindset, okay? And so, remember back in chapter 2, he says, you who call yourself a Jew and you boast about your relationship with God and you brag about your relationship because you have the law. So he's going back and he's saying, okay, now in this new system, if you're a Jew and you come to Christ and you received a gift of righteousness that has nothing to do with you, what becomes of boasting? It's like, uh, there's no room, right? There's no room for boasting. And so he says, that's right. He says, it is excluded. On what basis or principle? On that of observing the law? No, on that of faith. Because we maintain that a man is justified by faith, catch this, apart from observing the law. In other words, apart from our performance. Is what I'm telling you is that our relationship with God is based not on our performance of keeping the law. It's based on God's gift. Therefore, there's no room for boasting, Okay. Well, so that raises another issue, and the Jews have another question. Well, wait a second, Paul, but are you really telling me that as chosen people, we have no advantage at the judgment? I mean, aren't there, isn't there like one way of salvation for the Gentiles and another way for the Jews? I mean, there's got to be two different ways, and Paul says no, because there's only one God, and he's the God of the Jews, and he's the God of the Gentiles, and we're all fallen. So since there's only one God, and he justifies the circumcised Jewish people and the uncircumcised Gentile the same way, you see, there's not two ways. So he, he goes on in verse 20, uh, 29. Uh, is God the God of the Jews only? Well, no, of course not. He's the God of all the world. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Well, yes. And he says, and since there's only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jewish people, the uncircumcised through the same faith. It's just, that's the way it works. So they have one final question. Well, Paul, one final question then. What about the law? I mean, we've received this law from God. It's a great gift from God. Are you telling us that this, this whole new method of faith, like you're nullifying all of our Jewish history, you're nullifying the law, like it, it's of no value? And Paul's going to say, oh, absolutely not. The law is a great thing. In fact, in chapter 7, when he gets there, he'll spend a whole chapter talking about the law and our relationship. He'll say, no, the law is good. The law is holy. It's great. It's a great gift. Love God, love people. What's wrong with that? It's great. Okay? The law is great. The problem is human nature. 
He says, so I'm not saying, I'm not nullifying the law. I'm upholding the law. The law says this is the way to live. I agree. The law says if you don't do it, you're going to be judged. I agree. What I'm saying is that we're all judged, and that's why we need Christ. So I'm not nullifying it. I'm upholding it. And so he says in verse uh, 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Okay? So that's a passage. Now, like we do each week, what I want to do today is take some time to unpack this and talk about two extremely important truths for us as Christ's followers, kind of the implications of this teaching. Did you know that there'd be a lot of Bible teachers and scholars who would say this, these two paragraphs are the most important passage in the whole Bible? Uh, I'm not sure I would agree with that, but it'd certainly be in the top 10. It's just like, this is just really, and so we want to make sure that we hone in on, on kind of the great truths that are here, and there's two that I want to uh, focus on. So there in your note sheet, you have a section <coughs> that's called the, death, uh, the Great Deliverance, the Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's jump in. Number one, the first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that the death of Jesus is the great deliverance. Now, this is kind of the first truth, uh, most obvious truth, and yet many times I think as Christ followers we, we forget this because we're so familiar with this. Um, but what Paul wants to, to, to say is that the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all cosmic history. It's the greatest event in all cosmic history. Um, so, for example, for the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been laying out, remember when I, we started this? I said that it was the ultimate, uh, that the first three chapters of Romans is the ultimate good news, bad news story. Remember that? Um, and so, for three chapters, he's been giving us the bad news, right? I mean, it's so depressing. I've been on antidepressants for the last two months just to deal with this. You know, like we're all fallen. It doesn't matter whether you're a good kid, a bad kid, a, a chosen kid. We're all fallen. Okay, Paul, we get it, you know. And, and so, okay, we're, we're all, well, what about me? Yep, yep, you're guilty. What about me? Yep, you are too. Let me explain. Well, but certainly I'm not. No, you are too. Right? So for, for, he's been laying this out for us. And now he comes to the great, he comes to the good news. Is this, is the death of Jesus changes everything. And it's, it's the greatest event in cosmic history. Often as Christ followers, we, we lose sight of this. You know, we can become like ghetto Christians. You know what I'm talking about? Like, can we come to a little Christian ghetto? It's like, well, we all believe the same things, and, you know, the rest of the world done. We just kind of believe these little things here. And so for us, you know, uh, Jesus died, and, blah, 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 and we get this little thing. It's like, well, Paul's saying, no, this is not like a, this is not like a, a ghetto Christianity thing. This is like a cosmic Christianity thing. That, that in 30 A.D., the creator of the world came to the planet as Jesus of Nazareth. And he died and he rose again. And when that happened, it turned back the hands of time. And it was the, the repair work for the whole universe. And it's through that that the whole cosmos can be restored to God. You see, it's the biggest event Ever in the history of the cosmos. Now, here's, a, here's something that I think we often lose sight of, but it's so important of, is that, that one of the basic spiritual truths of life is that every one of us will one day have to go one-on-one -on -one 
with the creator of the universe. Now, we may all be there, but at that moment, it's going to be just you and him, right? It's just the two of you. And at that moment in time, what Paul has been telling us for three chapters is that it's going to be bad news. doesn't really matter what's your background, how spiritual you've been. At that moment in time, that you're going down. You're going to be judged. And all of a sudden, he says, into that courtroom where the whole human race is there, hopeless, speechless, helpless, doomed, and damned, walks Jesus of Nazareth. And because of he enters the courtroom, everything in human history changes. And now there is a way out. Now there is a way to be rescued, you see. Now, Paul says to understand how this works and how the death of Jesus works, he's going to give us three these word pictures or metaphors or descriptions of, of how this all works. So there in your note sheet is a section called uh, uh, Three Descriptions. And we're going to spend most of our time here this morning on these three descriptions. So we'll go on and we'll quickly do the second point. But three ways to help us understand what the death of Jesus is all about. So the first word, the first word is the word redemption. All right? So let's write that down. Seems like we have some kind of hum in here, is it? Are you hearing that? Uh, I don't know. So I, mean, if, I don't know if you're maybe a cause of that, but if you are, it'd be great if you could stop. Um, <laughs> I'm up here trying to remember what I'm saying, like, huh? It's like I'm starting to go into my lotus pose, you know, woo. Um, anyway, all right. So let's start with the first word is redemption. Um, so, so this is not a word that we use all the time, right? But this is the first word that uh, the Apostle Paul uses to describe it. Let's look back at verse 24, 324. He says that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Jesus Christ. So this is the first word. Now, this is not a word that we use a lot in our modern culture, is it? Like I mentioned, we might redeem coupons. Or every once in a while, it come up in a movie. It's a story of, you know, loss and redemption. We don't really use it a lot. But it was a common word in ancient time. And let me describe what it meant. Redemption had to do with buying back somebody. That was the idea. You bought someone back. And you, it was really used mostly in two contexts. is buying back prisoners of war or buying back slaves. Okay? So like prisoners of war. For example, uh, I've been talking, uh, the last time I was up here, I mentioned that uh, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading the last couple of years in ancient Greek and Roman history, right? So, you know, people like Herodotus and Thucydides and uh, uh, Polybius and Tacitus and Josephus and these guys. And this comes up all the time in their writings. That what would happen is it's like two Greek armies would come fighting one another, and then someone loses, and, uh, and so they'd want to get their prisoners back. And what they would do is they would redeem their prisoners. And then you got 100 of our guys, we'll give you 20 bucks a head or whatever it was, and you'd pay a price, and then you'd, you'd redeem back a prisoner of war. So redemption had to do with setting someone free from a POW camp, being a prisoner. Uh, the second place it was often used was redeeming slaves from the slave market. Like if you'd sold yourself into slavery or you were a slave and I wanted to get you out of slavery to be my slave or to set you free, I would redeem you. I'd pay a price to buy you, okay? So Paul says that what happened is when the human race, when we chose to follow Satan and sin instead of God, that we sold ourselves into slavery. But it was slavery to sin. It was slavery to the dark side. 
And so now we're all sitting on death row waiting for execution. We're in prison. We're in slavery. And so Jesus comes, and through his death, he, he, his body, his life pays for our release. So we get off of death row. So that's the first kind of picture or me- metaphor so it's, it's redemption. The second metaphor is the metaphor of sacrifice. So the second blank there is sacrifice. So let's look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, it's interesting. This word sacrifice of atonement, these three words, they actually translate one Greek word, all right? Now, I, often, I don't do a lot of Greek work up here when I'm teaching. And the reason is usually you can take a lot of time telling you what one, the Greek, it means this. When you get done, it means the same thing it means in English. But um, every once in a while, you come across a term that's really important to understand, and this is one of those times. So I want to give you the Greek word for the words we translate uh, the sacrifice of atonement, those three words, all right? And I actually want you to write this down. Is that important? I'm going to spell it out. It's a long word. I'm going to spell it out, okay? So the Greek word for sacrifice of atonement is helosterion. Helosterion. It's not on the screen. You just have to listen to me. I should have done that. Every, every, every service I do this, I helosterion. Everyone looks at the screen. Where is it? Um, Okay, so we're going to spell it, all right? So it's H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, Helosterion, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, Helosterion. Now let me tell you the history of that word. Um, You go back to the Old Testament, and God has redeemed the nation of Israel out of slavery. See, that's that word. God always, when he talks about coming out of slavery, God redeemed them out. It's a slave setting slavery. So he redeemed them out of slavery. He takes them to Mount Sinai. They're camped there. And one of the things God says is, I want to come and live in the midst of the people. I want to dwell with you as a nation. You have tents, I want a tent. So I want a tent right in the middle. Three tribes to the, uh, to the, to the west, three to the east, three to the north, three to the south. I want to live with you. Great. And he says, here's how to make the tent. Very specific instructions. First, uh, the, the tent's going to be divided into two compartments. The first compartment is called the holy place, right? In the holy place, there's a lot of activity that happens in there. Priests go in and out every day doing a variety of activities. The second compartment is a smaller compartment at the back. It's called the most holy place. Uh, in the old version, it was the holy of holies. So of all things holy... It was the holiest of the holies. That's where that comes from. And so the most high place. And there's not a whole lot in there. Um, and, and into the holiest place, the most holy place, only the high priest could go. Uh, and, and so only the top priest in the land, like he'd been paying his union dues the longest or whatever. So he'd become the high. No, just kidding. But anyway, so he's the high priest, top priest. He could go, and he could only go once a year. And it was on what was called the Day of Atonement. Some of you are from Jewish background. What's the Day of Atonement called? Yom Kippur. Yeah, Yom Day Kippur, covering. The Day of Covering, the day when our sins are covered. So top guy could go once a year, and when he goes in, he has to go in with the blood of a bull to cover his own sins, Kippur, cover his own sins. He has to take the blood of a goat to cover the sins of the people. Now, of course, the core concept of sacrifice is substitution, right? 
that instead of him being killed, the bull is killed. Instead of the people being killed, the goat is killed. Uh, you put your hands on top of the goat or whatever, and you take transfer your guilt onto them, and then they would be killed. So the core concept behind sacrifice is substitution. So what would happen on the day of Yom Kippur, he would take the blood in, he would go back into the room. Now, when you get in the room, there's not a whole lot there. In fact, the only thing that's there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you've all seen the Ark, right? Because you've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You see, it's God's timing that the new movie's coming out this next weekend and this sermon's coming together. <laughs> then I talk about how God's on the move. He's kind of moved Steven Spielberg, all of Hollywood, just for this sermon today. Okay, so here we go. So you've, you've probably seen pictures of the ark or re, you know, representations, but the ark, you know, it's like three and a half feet long, a couple feet wide, a couple feet deep, and, uh, and it was covered with gold, and on top of it was, there were these two gold angels, and they're facing each other. And, and the symbolism was, it was between the middle of the angels, the unseen God would reside. And so what would happen, and that was a gold-plated, uh, top to the ark. And so what would happen? The day of atonement, the, the, the high priest brings in the blood of the, 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 the bull, the goats. He comes in and he comes to the presence of God and he sprinkles the top of the, the, the gold plate up there between the angels. He sprinkles it with the blood. It was the place where forgiveness for the people came. It's a place where you would meet with God. You met over the blood, right? It was the blood that allowed you to meet. Are you following that? Now here's where it gets really interesting. So, so Paul, when he's teaching, he uses his Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. That's what he'd teach out of. That's what his readers are reading. Well, guess what? In the Old Testament, the word for the top of the, uh, top of the ark is where you put the blood. It's the word hilasterion. So see, what's, what's saying, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is our hilasterion. He's the place where the sacrifice, he's the place where we meet with God. It's through that sacrifice our sins are covered. It's there we have a relationship with God uh, because Jesus, the Helosterian, has come. So here in Romans 3, what it really says is God has presented him as our Helosterian. He's presented him as our, our, our sacrifice. Now, um, every week as we start this series, I always say this at the beginning, I always say that uh, in this series, we're studying the life and teaching of Paul, and we're using Romans as a gateway, a jumping-off point into the rest of his teaching, right? And here's a great example, because Paul's going to talk about this concept of sacrifice or substitution very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there in your note sheet, there's actually, a, I put the verse there, chapter 5, verse 21, and here's how it goes. It says, God made him who knew no sin... So remember in the Old Testament that the sacrifice had to be perfect, blameless, no blemish, nothing. Christ comes as the perfect God-man. He made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what I'm calling today the great exchange. That what happens in Jesus as our sacrifice is there is a great exchange your sin for his righteousness. And it's more than just a kind of a clearing out of your accounts. If you think of it in financial terms, it's not just that Jesus pays for your debts, pays off your debts. It's more than that. It's that he opens a joint account with you spiritually. 
And what happens is you receive all of his assets to your spiritual account. You follow me? So all the obedience and righteousness of Jesus is now credited to your account because you have a joint account with him. Which is why the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, throughout the New Testament, we are in Christ. We are united with Christ, you see. So it's not just that you're forgiven for your past, you are actually receive his credit for his righteousness before God. And so that's the sacrifice that's made. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, let me talk to you for just a second. Maybe you're new today, or you've been coming for a while, or you've been coming for 15 years, but for whatever reason, you've never really given your life to Christ. i got to tell you, this is the best deal you're ever going to get in the history of the world, right? Because here, here's the deal. It, basically, it doesn't matter what you've done wrong. He covers all your debts, and you get credit for everything he's done right. In theology, we call this the, the, the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not amputated, imputed righteousness of Christ, right? Okay, let's go on to the third picture. By the way, if you've never given your life to Christ in about 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to give you that chance. That's why I'm warning you now. You can be think of the implications of that. You can be listening with that in mind because in about 15 minutes, if you've never made that deal with Jesus, you've never accepted that offer, you're going to get that offer made to you today, all right? Now, number three, the third picture of what Christ has done is, is the word is pardon. Pardon. It's like a judicial term. And it's really not exactly the best word. It doesn't cover all the bases, but it gets us in the ballpark. It gets us in the judicial ballpark. Remember what, what Paul, when we left him last time, he leaves us before the judge of all the earth, right? And we're, we're guilty. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're helpless, hopeless, uh, speechless, damn doom. We're there. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes in, and, and what happens is a pardon is given. We're actually made right. You know, like when you go before a judge, and a judge says, you are not guilty, he pronounces you righteous. Uh, if you've done something wrong, you're even given a pardon. And so you're no longer guilty, and that's what happens. In fact, if you look at this in chapter 3 and verse 24 and 26, this is law court language, verse 24. Uh, that we're justified freely by his grace. We're justified, we're pronounced righteous. The word justify and righteous are the same exact word in the Greek. You translate it away. So you come before the court, we're guilty. Now God pronounces us righteous because of what Christ has done. If you look at verse 26, same language again. He did so to demonstrate his justice. See, he's the judge of all the earth at the present time, so as to be both just and also the one who justifies, pronounces us righteous. So the word is pardon. Now, we started the day with this story of our ex-president, Richard Nixon. And you remember we left him, right? He had just resigned. Now, there was no question at this point over whether he was guilty or not. Uh, the, the evidence had been mounting for two years. In fact, just a few days before those tapes came out that removed all doubt, the, Senate, uh, the, the House Ju Judiciary Committee had voted to indict him and to bring him before the full House for, for indictment on three counts, obstruction of justice, the abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. So he was done. He was about to be impeached. The tapes come out. He realizes, man, I, there's, I'm, I'm out of here. And so he, he resigns. But there's no question he was guilty. 
You see? No question. Now, a month later, September the 8th, the new president, Vice President Gerald Ford, who now assumes office, he stands up in a press conference and he issues a pardon for Richard Nixon that kind of makes him free of all crimes committed. And I, I don't know how you feel about that. If you were alive then or if you've seen it on TV or something, but I don't know how you feel about that. You're like, should have had that? I don't really care. The reason I'm bringing it up is because it's a great illustration of what happens to us as we go before the court of God. And I want to read you, this week I was doing some research on this, and I want to read you the text of the actual pardon that Gerald Ford read at that, at that news conference. Here's, here's what he said. He says, the, uh, the President of the United States, Gerald Ford, President of the United States, he grants, don't catch these words, the President of the United States, he grants a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses Against the United States. You see that? You can catch those words. Full, free, absolute, all offenses. And with that one statement, he walks away a free man. There's is he guilty? Absolutely guilty. But with that one, and here's what Paul is saying, is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus Christ, there is a pronouncement that is read over our lives that says that from this point on, all offenses against the king of the universe have been forgiven, and you are now receive a pardon that's full, that is free, and that is absolute from this point on, you see? So Paul says that's what happens when we, we come to Christ. So he uses these three pictures, redemption from slavery or POW camp, uh, the picture of sprinkling of blood, the substitutionary sacrifice. In theology, we call it the, the uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ. And he uses this picture of a pardon or even the imputation, even more than a pardon. Not only are we forgiven, we receive righteousness of, of Christ's righteousness. Now, now, the second point then, the second principle is, that this deliverance, the second big picture of deliverance, this deliverance has nothing to do with our performance. And kind of we've said this in a variety of ways, but I just want to hammer this home, that this deliverance has nothing to do with our performance. It's apart from the law, is Paul's way of saying it. And I want you to look at this. Look at chapter 3 and verse 24. He says that we are justified, pronounced righteous, we're justified freely by his grace. You see that? That this pronouncement over our life has nothing to do with us any more than when President Ford issued his proclamation. It had nothing to do with Richard Nixon's righteousness. He did not say Richard Nixon is not guilty. We all knew he was guilty. You see, the pardon had nothing to do with his performance. And that's, this is the point for us to understand as Christ followers, it's so hard for us to catch this, that your relationship with God, when you give your life to Christ, your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It has nothing to do with your performance. It is apart from law. It has nothing to do. Now, this is so hard for us to catch. I want to try to help us paint a picture and help us get this. And I'd like you to help me out if you would. 
if you would just uh, kind of play along here, if you'd close your eyes, bow your head, I, I want you to use your imagination for a minute, okay? I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. You're not going to share this one for, with anyone else, so you're safe, all right? But here's the, here's the first question. I want you to ask you a question. What is the worst thing that you've ever done in all your life? What's the thing that you have the most regret over? I want to ask you, wh what is that thing? And I want you to focus on that thing for a minute. I just want to focus on it. Fix it in your mind. If you're having a hard time kind of picking, let me give you some options. Let me give you some suggestions to jog your mind. Maybe for some of you, it's you, bet you betrayed a friend that led to huge pain in their life. Maybe for uh, some of us, it's uh, we had an affair or multiple affairs. Maybe it's uh, uh, that you had kids and you, when they were young, you just failed your kids. Maybe you've had a failed marriage or more than one. Maybe you've had an abortion or more than one. Maybe you've been addicted to drugs or, or you're addicted to alcohol or some other substance abuse. Maybe you've um, uh, slept around and been promiscuous. Maybe uh, you're addicted to porn or been addicted to porn. Maybe you've gone to the prison. Maybe you've committed acts of violence or murder or all the, the, the above. Maybe there's a time in your life you're so angry you told God where to get off. Maybe the sins that you've committed are not so much outward, but they're sins of the heart, as we've talked about. Greed, jealousy, pride, envy, malice, bitterness, hatred. Okay? But whatever it is, I want you to, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I want you to focus on that. And here's my question for you. The question is, do you realize that what Paul is saying is if you are a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to him, you've asked him to come into your life, take over your life, run your life, that you have received an absolute, full, free pardon for all crimes committed against the king. While your eyes are closed, your head are bowed, let me ask you another question. Do you realize that what Paul is saying is that if you had never committed that crime, God would not love you one bit more than he already does? Do you realize this? That God loves you as much today as he would have loved you if, he, if you'd never committed that act. Do you realize that God will never love you more and he will never love you less based on your performance. That he loves you just because he does. And while you're still looking down, let me ask you one more question. Do you realize what Paul is saying, what the implication does this mean as Christ followers? What it means is that there is no second class citizen in the family of God. Do you realize that, that what he's saying is you're either in or you're out. You're either redeemed or you're not. You're either sprinkled with the blood or you're not. You're either justified and pardoned or you're not. There's no halfway house for Christ's followers. That if you've given your life to Christ, all crimes committed against the king have been pardoned. And that pardon is full, and it's free, 
and it's absolute, and it's not just for crimes in the past, it's all crimes you will ever commit in the future. Now, can you just live with that truth for just a moment of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Okay, let's all look up. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, would you, that is good news. This is good news. We, we've got the best news in the world. And you see, this is what communion's all about. Communion is a time where we remind ourselves of the great truths we've been studying today. I know some of you are baseball fans. I'm a baseball fan. I was a baseball player. You know, you get a single, you walk, whatever, you get on first base. What do you do? First, watch the pitcher, right? You move over, getting your lead off. He throws pitch. You're not going anywhere. Throws it back. What do you do? Go back. Touch the base. Why? Got to touch the base? Some really got to touch the base? No, you just want to make sure you're safe. Still there. Still make sure that we have an appropriate relationship, the base and myself. If there's uh, not too much space between me and the base, we keep a close relationship, right? Pitch because I'm ready to run. I'm ready to run. Should I steal? Should I go? Ah, not the right pitch. Go back. Touch the base. Just want to make sure I'm safe. Communion is a time when we touch the base. That's what communion's about. We go away. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm ready to run with him. Should I steal or not? It's not the right time. Am I really okay with Jesus? Touch the base. That's right. It's not about me. It's not about my performance, right? So communion's a time where as followers of Jesus, we come and touch the base. We just remind ourselves of these great truths that we've been talking about today, that our relationship with God, our pardon, it's full, it's free, it's absolute, has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our performance. And I'll tell you something, the deeper we go in this truth as Christ followers, the more freedom we have in our life, isn't it? Isn't that true? Because all of a sudden, man, we start getting free from the guilt. We get free from the shame. We get free from our fear of failure. We get free from our condemnation. When we fail, we can just get up and keep on moving because we, 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 the enemy has no grounds to come and say, you're not worth it, you're, you're this, you're that, right? And so we're free. One of the questions in your life group homework that I'm going to ask you to work on this week is just to think of the implications. What would life be like if we really got this? How would our life be different if we really got this? You know, if we really went deeper. And see that this is a message not just for new Christians or not for non This is a message for us as Christ followers because we never outgrow this. Because as we go on in our life, are you like me? I mean, there's times you feel insecure in your relationship with God because you've done something stupid. And all of a sudden, you got to go back and touch the base. Hey, it's not about me, right? This is not about me. This is the righteousness of God. It's been given to me. It's apart from law. It's nothing to do with me. Touch the base. Okay, I'm good. Now I'm ready to move back, start running with him again. Let's go for a second, you see. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to those of you who've never accepted this greatest deal in the history of the world, this offer that Jesus makes to come into your life, to forgive your sins, to put his spirit inside of you, to change you from the inside out, and to reserve a spot in forever with him. 
It's the greatest deal in the history of the world, but it's something that you have to accept. It's something that you have to reach out and take. It's like a gift. You have to receive it. And what happens is all you do is you tell them that you're tired of running, you're tired of living your own life. You lay down your arms, you come to Jesus, you leave your past behind, you ask him to forgive you for everything you've done, you ask him to come into your life, change you, and then the adventure begins. And if you've never prayed that prayer, you've never had that moment, I want to give you that chance right now. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and I'll pray it out loud. You can just pray along with me in your heart and ask Christ into your life today. Dear Jesus, for the first time in my life, I understand what your death is about. I ask you to come into my life today to forgive my sins to redeem me from slavery to sin, to sprinkle me with your blood, to pardon me for all crimes committed, and to come into my life by your Holy Spirit and change me from the inside out. I lay down my arms. I stop fighting. I will follow you. Teach me how to follow. Oh, our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. If you prayed that prayer today, that you made that decision to follow Jesus, there's some steps you need to take. You're going to need to get baptized. You need to start get a Bible. You're going to need to start growing in your new relationship. And if you will write on your card today, your registration card, in a few minutes we'll be taking the offering and there's registration card in your bulletin. If you will just write on there, write me a message, Mike, I prayed the prayer, or I asked Christ into my life. We all know exactly what you mean. And this week, I'll send you a letter about the next steps in this new life that you've just started. And then we will also be able to pray for you as a staff and prayer teams. Father, we are so thankful for this incredible gift that you've given us, this gift of pardon. And Lord, as we come now to the communion table, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood that was broken and shed for us as a, as a, uh, a sacrifice of atonement as a substitution for our life so we could make this great exchange, our sin for your righteousness. We thank you for that as we come to the table now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be going into our time of communion right now. And if you've never been here at Rocky Peak, we've done that. We have tables with the elements around the room. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you've not yet given your life for Jesus, this is not for you. The point where you do give your life, that becomes kind of a, a family moment. And so don't feel obligated to go. But uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, the band is going to be playing, just kind of padding softly. And it's a, they just play some background music. This is a time for you to go and touch the bass with Jesus and just to remember what it means to be a Christ follower. And so as, you, uh, as they play, when you feel ready to go, then just go ahead and go and receive that. If you want to come up here in front and have some time of prayer uh, at the stairs or in front of the stage, just a time with God, this would be a great time to do that. And then I'll come back when we're done with communion and we'll, we'll go into some more worship. Uh, after everyone's received communion, they'll lead us in some worship. And then uh, I'll come up and we'll close the service.